37th parallel on America's haunted highway, it's Pixelated Paranormal, your guide to the unusual and the strange. Well, hey there, everybody. Welcome back to Pixelated Paranormal. This will be episode 193, a special two-part. Well, it's not really a two-part. I guess it's a twofer. A cryptid encounter two-for-one special. A cryptid encounter inside a cryptid encounter. It's like Inception, man. (laughs) It's like the turducken of aquatic cryptids. Yeah, man. Now, at the top, we got to mention Steve couldn't join us because, again, he's on call for work, but we'll have him back next time around. Don't you worry, your sweet little heads. Oh, yeah. But we had kind of a fun weekend. Uh, Old Big Dobbs himself and his fiancée Hillary came uh, down from Omaha, Nebraska for the hot handmade market this weekend down in Old Town. And so we got a chance to actually hang out with uh, with Big Dobbs and Hillary for the first time in, I mean, over two years. Yeah, man. And he's actually looking pretty good. Dobbs, if you're listening, man, you were looking mighty fit. Uh, yeah, as a fiddle. Yeah. Almost made me chub a little bit. <laughs> well, what it did for me is make me feel chubby. So good yeah. job. Yeah. Thanks, Alan. <laughs> <laughs> That's what he meant by Papa Chubb. <laughs> No, it's cool, man. Uh, the three of us got to get together um, along with Big Dobbs and go to dinner um, with Shayla and Jeffrey and Hillary and just get a chance to hang out for a little while. And it was cool, man. Just got a chance to get the band back together. Steve-o, Steve-o was there. Don't forget old Steve was at dinner. That's what I said. The three of us got a chance to get together with him. Well. <laughs> Preston, Steven, and myself got a chance to get together with Dobbs. How's that? Yeah. And Steve talked about the juggalo life. That's true. Or gigolo, <laughs> yeah. or gigolo life, however you, you know. A little bit of A, a little bit of B. Yeah. Yeah, he got to uh, embellish us with the story of the time he went to a gathering of the Juggalos, the first and only time he went to a gathering <laughs> of the Juggalos. Sounds like it is not for the faint of heart. But... Yeah. Yeah, it was cool. We had a chance to uh, catch up. It was really good to see him in person and uh, hang out with both of them. And then I went down um, this afternoon. We're recording on Sunday, the 23rd, and I went down and hung out with uh, Dobbs and Hillary for the afternoon down at their tent, peddling the Big Dobbs Beard Balm and also um, kind of pushing the podcast a little bit. How'd that go, man? So that was kind of cool. Uh, it went really good. Uh, I wish you guys could have got to go with me, but it was good. We... Talked to uh, a couple listeners stopped by, and then we actually talked to some new people we turned on to the podcast. So that was pretty exciting. And then, I can't announce yet who it is. And Preston, I haven't even told you yet. But I was able to uh, network and link up with another local coffee roaster who also has a paranormal podcast they've been doing about urban legends. So once we get a little bit more uh, further on that, and I'll tell you off the air, or I can tell you now and edit um, we'll talk more about that as soon as we get things linked up. But uh, yeah, went down there and, and chatted it up with him, gave him a sticker. And I'm like, look, I, I don't know how you feel about this, but, uh, you know, we've went to try to, you know, do some work with other podcasts before. And sometimes they kind of shy away and they're like, oh, no, you know, my listeners are my listeners. And I said, but as far as I'm concerned, uh, the plenty of room at the table for all of us. So uh, which which stall is up, it? 
Wichita only has room for one paranormal podcast, and it's us. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Uh, I was like, we would love to uh, link up sometime and do some work together, man, do some shows and stuff like that. And he was uh, beyond excited about that. So he actually, oh, yeah. uh, he had called his wife, who was at the Sally House, uh, doing a uh, investigation there. And I ran into him later and gave him a sticker. And he's like, dude, please, please message us. And I said, dude, you better freaking believe it. So. Yeah, done deal. Yeah, so that'll be a, a really fun time. I'm excited to get that going um, probably this summer. L-E-A-L. Yeah. Well, presto, on uh, episode 193, this will be a Cryptid Encounter Part 18, you've got a pretty unique monster that was uh, inspired by the lore behind the Bat-Squatch and whether or not you thought it was an actual uh, creature, an actual flesh-and-blood monster, or a demon. So why don't you take it away and uh, get into it. Yeah. Bat Squatch, the lake monster. How the hell did that happen? And I'm not talking about the lame-ass Loch Ness, a.k.a. Messy Nessie. No, <laughs> listeners, this episode, it's all about a nicotine-deprived water snake dragon thing. We're not really sure. The reports are kind of sketchy. And if you're wondering how we got from a demon bat to a demon snake, don't you worry. I'll beat us around the bush to get there. And... Uh, Normally, this is where I'd ask uh, old Steve if uh, he had an amateur sketch or if uh, inside his uh, big book of bullshit, if there was anything on the Koshkanong water demon. But Steve's not here, so we're going to skip over that part. <laughs> oh, man, we'll have to just do it yeah. our damn selves. Yeah. And I'd never heard about this thing, man, but it seems pretty interesting. I'm excited to kind of chat about it. Fuck, I haven't even heard of Lake... Kosh Kanong, and uh, so I figured if I haven't heard about it, you probably haven't heard about it. The listeners probably haven't heard about it. And uh, Old Lake Kosh Kanong is a 10,500-acre lake. Holy shit, that's a lot of land. Largely, damn, uh, lake, yeah. yeah, in the uh, southwestern Wisconsin-Jefferson County, connected to the Rock River on both ends, but has an average depth of only six feet. So it's not... Uh, <laughs> not too deep so you could go noodling in that thing it's the koshkanong puddle yeah yeah a little puddle the name <laughs> koshkanong is believed to derive from the awebe word gishke gong nag which is catfish place so you really could oh. go noodling in there the potawami tribe of native americans maintained camps and villages along the lakes uh Lake's Edge before European settlers arrived, settling there in the 17th century as they fled Michigan to avoid this expanding Uruguays. But by early 19th century, uh, they had been relocated with extreme prejudice to reservations in Oklahoma. The Potawatomi oh. traditions held that a water demon... That's the Potawatomi, isn't it? Yeah, what did I say? <laughs> I The Potawatomi? <laughs> yeah, whatever. <laughs> Uh, that's why we keep you around. Yeah, potato, potato. Anyways, the potato <laughs> traditions held that the water demon occupied Lake Koshkanong. And no man in his right mind would attempt to cross the lake without first making said demon an offering of tobacco. Or in this day and age, maybe some, you know, big dubs sweet tobacco. That might uh, curb the edge of the old demon over. 
But uh, w- without an offering of tobacco, the nasty brute was rumored to overturn canoes and drag the victims underwater to drown and devour them. Between 1921 and 45, Wisconsin Historical Society Museum curator Charles E. Brown wrote a series mm. of pamphlets collecting all sorts of legends and folklore found throughout the state of Wisconsin. Within this 24-long period of writing, Brown wrote a pamphlet called Sea Serpents, which compiled nine pages worth of different lake monster stories told throughout the state. So uh, where's a uh, where's a champ at? Uh, champ is in like what? Lake Champlain. Yeah. And that, but that's like, uh, like what, Michigan? Uh, it's in the states of Vermont and New York. Yeah, well, fuck you, Vermont and New York, because Wisconsin's where the lake monsters are at, okay? And, with <laughs> and the, that, that Indian tribe, Native American tri- uh, tribe, was the Ojibwe. Okay, cool. So within the forward of this collection, Brown states that the first Wisconsin lake monster was believed to have shown up uh, back in the state in 1882 and was known by everyone as the... Rock, uh, as Rocky, the terror of Rock Lake. Many years ago, the Moscatin, or Prairie Potawatomi, had villages on the shores of Lake Koshkonog. A water monster of great power and terrible form dwelt in the depths and made havoc with every Indian canoe it came across. No Indian dared to attempt to cross the lake from shore to shore, even in mild weather because of the fear of this destructive denizen of the waters. Near the narrows of the lake rises a rocky hill, and near it there is an island on which the Indians camped when trapping muskrats. On the west side of the hill there was a place where no Indian could cross. All who attempted were sure to be drowned. Once there were two Potawatomi brothers, who concluded that the story of the water monster was false. So one day, starting on opposite directions, they set out to navigate the lake in their canoes. All the Indians watched them from afar in fear. They expected that they would never be seen again. Soon, a big wind arose, and it was so strong and fierce, it blew even the ducks that were flying overhead down into the water. The Indians in the camp sang sacred songs for the well-being of the two boys. But that evening, they did not return. The two canoes were found later capsized, and after some time, several white men told the Potawatomi they had found the bodies of two boys floating in the lake. There was a strange white clay found in their nostrils and their ears, a sure sign that the Lake Koshkinog monster had indeed caught them and drowned them both. To this day, some Indians still are afraid of the waters of Lake Koshkinong, believing the water monster still prowls about the shores. So this clay was the uh, final proof the tribe needed to prove the demon was real and it had been the one responsible for their deaths. But why is the white clay so significant, you might be asking? Well, the reason the pot Potawatomi believed that this white clay uh, was only found in the demon's uh, cavernous home below the lake. They believed that all water demons, or water spirits, created their homes below the lakes and rivers by first hollowing it out and then covering it with their dung, kind of like Bakwano. 
See, we're getting there. We're Guano. Yeah. Which is could be the white clay. So to find a ah. find a body covered in this white clay, aka demon shit, it could only mean that their body had truly been taken to the dwelling of the water demon prior to turning up on the shore. After this memorable event, the legend of the demon in Lake Conchkanong became true for the Potawatomi and other tribes in the area. So what you're saying is like this water demon just shit in the water and then built its own house out of its own dung. Yeah, because look, it's it's not that deep, right? It's only like six feet, so you can't hide a fucking yeah. you know Lake Champlain, you know Nessie monster that size. So it dug down, like it made like a cave, and then it covered that cave full of white. You know, like bat shit, like, you know, bats do. And uh, then... You know, water monster shit, yeah. Yeah, water monster shit. And then uh, it would come up through, like, a little hole and then uh, grab people, take it back down the hole, and then as that person was thrashing around, you know, get shit in its ears, shit in its mouth, shit in their eyes, and then uh, they <laughs> flow back... Go. Yeah, and then they flow back up to the top, covered in white clay, and they're like, holy shit! It's, you know, demon shit. Ah, <laughs> Holy shit. It's quite literally shit. Yeah. <laughs> uh, speaking of being shitty, this is pronounced the Potawatomi. I think I said Potawatomi, so corrections all around. <laughs> yeah, we're still probably Potawatomi. not. Potawatomi. Yeah, we're still probably not going to pronounce it right for the rest of the show, so, you know. Oh, boy. Yeah. Just saying. Well, the Indians had a legend of the presence of a destructive water demon in Lake Koshkanog where white residents of its shores thereafter would have every right to similar beliefs. So this is kind of like a uh, urban legend type of deal. First off, you start off with the Native Americans, and then it leaks its way and kind of twists its way into, you know, the Caucasian urban legends. So yeah. that's kind of cool, kind of like the Wendigo and the Sasquatch. It transcends, you know, from culture to culture. Oh, yeah. Some former carp fishermen actually told a story about how their small boat engaged in a very large water animal that completely wrecked it and its meshes. It may have been a huge pickerel, but they actually thought otherwise from the way that it twisted and tore the stout boat in half. A farmer living in the west side of this big lake was quite sure that the same animal devoured several of his pigs. Eh, just, like just like Basquatch. Just like Basquatch. The prized pigs. Yeah. Other people saw a strange water animal they couldn't quite identify off the mouth of Koshkanog Creek. The late well-known naturalist Halvor L. Skovlum, in one summer evening, caught a large number of big pickerel in the lake. These pickerel he killed with an axe handle, and a large number of cuts on his handy weapon each represented the dead pickerel. So basically he noshed his bedpost, so to speak. Yeah. But there's no mark to ever show he caught and killed a water demon. The uh, the monster of Lake Koshkanong seems to have laid low for a little while. That is, until November 1887, when the critter made its final appearance. The Watertown Republican, a neighboring town's newspaper, republished an account first posted in the Fort At Atkinson Sunday Centennial of two intrepid duck hunters that spotted the elusive cryptid. Okay, so this is from the Sunday Sentinel. Considerable interest is manifested here in the remarkable experience of A.I. Sherman of this city and a cousin of his, Charles Bartlett of Milwaukee, while the two were out hunting a few days since on Lake Koshkanog. They were rowing down the south edge of the Northeast Bay 
when they both saw, about fifteen rods off, a huge snake-like object swimming towards the center of the lake. Now, fifteen rods is the equivalency of about 250 feet. It swam with the head raised about two feet above the water, and about ten feet of the trunk was visible, and apparently eighteen inches thick. The water was calm, and from the tremendous long wake, the animal appeared to be about thirty or forty feet long. The gentleman rode rapidly towards it, with the hope of killing it at a close range. But as soon as the water creature saw them, it slipped under the water, and they were forced to give up chase. This is about the sixth or seventh appearance of perhaps the same animal, as Red Cedar Lake, only a few miles away, has a big snake history with a record of five or six appearances. After the uh, sighting, a few other people from the area came forward to report that they believed they had also encountered the monster in, in some form as well. Unnamed fishermen reported that some large creature had not only gotten caught within their nests, but had also managed to break through them. The fishermen were unable to see what exactly was caught in the nets due to the murkiness of the water, but they believed it to have been the monster. Others, though, believe the culprit was nothing more than an oversized muskie caught in an old, weak net. Later, a farmer located on the west side of the lake came forward and claimed that something large took and devoured some of his pigs that were fe feeding near the shore. The bodies were never found, <laughs> but the creature responsible does not sound like the same creature originally seen by the two cousins. Could be an earlier, you know, report of a basquatch. The creature first reported was thought to be between 8 and 12 inches wide and 30 to 40 feet long, and this seems much too small to be responsible for grabbing multiple full-grown pigs at once and devouring them so completely so as not to leave a trace. But to play devil's advocate, a lake monster has never been caught and studied, so we don't know how they operate and what they're capable of. After the sighting in 1887, the Lake Koshkanong monster seems to have simply vanished. No ver verifiable sightings were ever made again, and the story grew into a local legend. While many believe the creature could have never truly have existed in the lake that was only seven feet deep to begin with, others feel that it was not only real, but that it somehow relocated itself from Lake Koshkanong over to Red Cedar Lake near Fort Atkinson. Now, over in Red Cedar Lake, they had a shit ton of sightings. Yeah. Yeah. From like 1895 all the way to 1945 of a beast of similar size and stature. Yeah. So, uh, tobacco offerings. Let's talk about that. That's the uh, one thing <laughs> that stood out for me with this story was the uh, tobacco yeah. offering. Like, what the fuck is it and why do we do it? Well, traditional tobacco is tobacco and or other plant mixtures grown and harvested and used by... American Indians and Alaska Natives for ceremonial or medicinal purposes. Traditional tobacco has been used by American Indian nations for centuries as a medicine with cultural and spiritual importance. Many tribes maintain teachings and stories of the origin of tobacco. These teachings address tobacco in its purest form, today known as the tobacco plant Nicotana rutisca, rustica, I don't know. Anyways, it may include mixtures of other <laughs> native plants. Traditional tobacco preparation uh, and uses vary across tribes and regions. 
with Alaska natives commonly using not commonly using uh, traditional tobacco. These variances are due to the many different teachings among the tribes of North America. In some cultures, the roles of growing, harvesting, and preparing traditional tobacco are held by specific groups of people who used traditional ways to prepare tobacco for specific uses. One common teaching involves the importance of having good attitudes and thoughts while working with traditional tobacco. Traditional tobacco is a medicine which can be used in a prescribed way to promote physical, spiritual, emotional, and community well-being. It may be used as an offering to the creator or to another person, place, or being, a.k.a. a fucking water demon. A gift of traditional <laughs> tobacco is a sign of respect and may be offered when asking for help, guidance, or protection, or please don't eat me while I'm crossing your fucking lake. Traditional tobacco is sometimes used directly for healing in traditional medicine, and it may be burned in a fire, smoked in a pipe, yet generally the, the smoke is not inhaled. In many teachings, the smoke from burned tobacco has a purpose of carrying thoughts and prayers to the spirit world or to the creator. When used appropriately, traditional tobacco is not associated with addiction and adverse health impacts. So, so okay, we teased this at the beginning, but we didn't really talk about what the actual tobacco offering was. So, basically, uh, a lot of cultures kind of do this, too. When I was uh, younger, my uh, my brother uh, used to go down to the, the Thai bin market a lot, and he would always buy mm -hmm. this paper money called hell money. And as, mm -hmm. as a kid, I was like, what, you know, Jason, why the fuck is it called hell money? And in the Chinese culture, they believe that uh, whatever, you know, physical thing that you have here in, in this realm, if you burn it, then when it, you know, disappears here, it turns to ash here, it actually manifests in the spiritual realm. And so they would actually burn mm -hmm. money. Kind of like how the Greeks, they would lay two coins on the eyes of the dead to help you pay for the boatman. Well, in the Chinese culture, oh, yeah, uh -huh. in the Chinese culture, they would actually burn the money after you died because when you're in the spirit realm, you would have to pay. You basically kind of go on living. So they're like, "Well, fuck, Grandpa might be poor, so let's go ahead and burn some money." And when the <laughs> right. uh, you know when you're uh, the you know the Christianity kind of started taking over, and you would have. Like, you know, all these different peoples, you know, going to different countries and trying to spread Christianity. When they got to, to China, the, the translation got lost. And so when the Christians were saying like, oh, if you do this, you're going to go to hell. And they're like, well, what's hell? And they were trying to explain. They're like, oh, that's our fucking afterlife, man. That ain't no thing. We got some fucking dough for that. So then it started to be called, <laughs> uh, be called hell money. And so there's this idea that if this is a water spirit or a water demon that if when you're, you know, making it and producing the traditional tobacco and you're having like good thoughts and you can say, okay, as I'm putting the, you know, the nicotine, you know, you know, leaves together and putting a little bit of, you know, vanilla in there, like, please, Mr. Water Demon, you know, don't, don't eat me. And then as you light it and smoke it, all those good thoughts and, and that, you know, prayer, of protection and you know don't eat me go to the spirit realm and then 
basically the fucking water demon sitting there inhaling all that shit like fuck yeah man i ain't gonna fucking eat you that fucking tobacco on this that fucking vanilla was the shit i can't nobody ever puts vanilla into tobacco fuck yeah little guy go ahead cross the lake and so they would they would do it as a way to appease the spirits but at the same time they would put like well-beings and happy thoughts and all this shit into okay. you know, doing it as a way to appease you know please don't eat me so Aha, okay, perfect. Yeah. And with that, uh, you you know, as those Native Americans kind of moved out of that region or were forced out of that region, it's not unreasonable to consider that the water demon of Lake Koshkanong moved on to find a more reliable source of tobacco products. But uh, local (laughs) rumors still around that the creature lurks in the depth of the lake, Jones and Forrest Smoke trying to keep his uh, distance from us pesky humans and remembering the time when he was feared and respected. So he's probably just di- down there in his fucking shit cave like, ah, just fuck it. I need a nicotine. Oh, my God. Uh, where's the Marlboro man when you need him? Yeah. Oh, fuck. I'll even take a camel right now. Come on. Let me up a camel. <laughs> well, what stuck with me about this is it's so very similar to a lot of the Japanese beliefs of the yokai because back when we talked about yokai a lot of the different stories i was reading came up with offerings that people would make to the yokai so that they wouldn't bother them either mm-hmm. you know whether it be um unfortunately sometimes it was young children but oftentimes it would be some kind of liquor or food or herbs yeah rum and a, that was meant to be an offering yeah uh uh you know in the the caribbean uh, like jamaica and uh uh like the haitian culture Rum is a pretty popular offering. They're like, you know, this this fucking demon over here's got a bad attitude. Let me go ahead and pour a couple shots of rum and uh you know, they would just leave it out and the idea was that uh, in the spirit realm the the demon could drink the rum and be like, you know, drunk and not want to kill him anymore. So Yeah, I think that was one of the ways to summon Papa Legbo. Yeah. Um little cocaine, little rum. Beliefs. <laughs> yeah, he just likes to party, man. Yeah, some, he doesn't care what you wanted to do. He just wants to party a Some fucking bit. bath salts. Like, he's down. <laughs> well, um, something else that struck with me was uh, we had gone to a restaurant here recently in Wichita, and it was, um, oh, gosh, it was Korean. I want to say it was a Korean restaurant, but they actually had an offering mantle set up, and it was a shrine of, like, a cat and inside of it, it had incense burning, uh, burned up cigarettes. It had rolled up uh, what I believe to be maybe, uh, let's just call them paper cigarettes. Um, there were burned up dollar bills and all sorts of other crazy stuff. Bottles of liquor, shots, uh, and that's exactly what that was. Shayla says, what is that? I said, that's an offering table. It's like a shrine or a mantle, and they're basically offering these things up to the spirits just to kind of help, you know, maybe it's to keep them in business, maybe it's to ward off, you know, robbers. It's basically just, you know, for good luck. But it's funny, this also offering this tobacco to the uh, Kashinog monster is very similar to making offerings to fey folk, because when we were doing Thieves in the Night, that's a pretty common thing to do for fey as well, is to leave some kind of offering so that... Instead of these little bastards showing up trying to steal, you know, your pets and your babies and stuff like that, if you would leave them offerings in good faith, they would start working with you. Maybe they would start, you know, tilling your garden and fertilizing your garden, your flower beds, as opposed to just destroying them. So it was pretty often, uh, it's pretty common to often leave 
um, oh, offerings of like milk and honey, things that the Fae might not have in their actual realm that were vital to their magic and actually, you know, their well-being. So you could leave a thimble or a shot glass full of milk or honey out. Or other times you would leave, um, you know, whiskey or rum or wine. Uh, you could bake cookies and cakes, you know, all sorts of stuff. And it was very common for a lot of European cultures. Whenever you would make a big plate for a holiday feast, you would make one extra plate and sit it out on your doorstep so that any kind of creature could come up and eat it that was living in your area, you know, depending on your culture and your beliefs. So I'm going to tie this back into Bat Squatch. This is what I think Bat Squatch is. Bat Squatch is instead of like a water demon, it's, you know, like a, uh, you know, like a forest demon or like a woodland demon. Uh-huh. And uh, he was flying over uh, North America and, uh, you know, he, he saw the mountain and said, I'm going to go ahead and, you know, bury myself in that mountain to make myself like a nice home. Because uh, Native Americans in that area have a legend of a demon that would uh, fly in the middle of the night and would steal hunters. Mm. And it had red glowing eyes. And we talked about how uh, the uh, the Basquatch had red eyes. And mm-hmm. uh, the tr- the word for the demon, and I can't, I'm, I'm not going to pronounce it. So I'll just, I'll fuck it up. Oh, it, come it, on, please. Anyways, the, the, <laughs> what it translates to is something that means like thin skinned. Um, so you think about like bat wings, how like the skin is like very thin on bat wings. So this creature, mm-hmm. basically the skin around its whole entire body and on its wings was like paper thin. Um, but again, it had red glowing eyes. So, you know, the Native Americans are forced out of that area. They stopped making the offerings. And just like the water demon had uh, made its uh, home, you know, like a little cave under the lake and, and shit. You know, the, mm-hmm. the bat demon made its uh, home inside the mountain and, uh, you know, it had its little shit lair. And then uh, when the volcano erupted, it fucking blew it out. And you know what? He'd been probably hidden inside that cave for like 500 years without a fucking hit of nicotine. And he was just fucking pissed and like roaring and then uh, ate a couple prize pigs. So, you know, took a trucker off the highway and was like, peace, bitches, I'm out. <laughs> it flew over and saw the billboard that says Lake Koshkanog, a great place to build a shit house. Yeah, yeah. Oh, awesome. Well, I liked it, man. Thank you very much for uh, sharing that with the class. Yeah, you're welcome. Now, on the old Instagram, we did put out a little APB here. We want to know what's your favorite lake monster. So we had a couple people write in and make comments. So we're going to dive into a couple of those and then do a bit of a deep dive on the last one here. All right. So up first, we've got Jonathan Dodd underscore draws on Instagram. And he said his favorite lake monster is Nessie Faux Show. And of course, we've talked. (laughs) We've talked about. Nessie a little bit on the show before we've never done a full deep dive into it um only because it hasn't really been our cup of tea presto between you and I yeah not to say it's not you know a noteworthy cryptid I just feel like again out of all the cryptids in the world that one seemed to me like maybe the most plausible and the least excitable just because I think again to me uh Man, maybe you too, Presto. It's the most plausible thing that we'd have out there. You know, a giant mm-hmm. monster in the water, a giant dinosaur, or plethiosaur, or whatever it is, a giant eel now they're saying. That's believable. No, it's a g- giant turtle. 
So there's uh, this uh, prehistoric turtle that um, has an elongated neck, like because we never see a turtle outside of its shell, right? Because so it would die, right? This so this species <laughs> of turtles have developed without a shell. They're like freaks of nature, and uh, so there's prehistoric evidence of these things existing. And they've actually found skeletal remains of these ancient turtles at the nests. Um, mm-hmm. And so this modern day anthropologist um, was like, yeah, dude, fucking mystery solved. And, uh, the Nessie Messy is uh, nothing <laughs> more than a turtle without a shell. And it's just hanging out, you know? Huh, interesting. Well, one day we might do a show on Nessie or link, uh, at least link Nessie in because we do want to do some diving into the occult phenomenons of uh, Aleister Crowley. And a lot of folks, of course, believe that he's the one that may have summoned Nessie into existence. So, But uh, I also want to give a big shout out, guys. If you're on Instagram, please jump on and check out Jonathan Dodd underscore draws. That's Dodd with D-O-D-D underscore D-R-A-W-S. Jonathan Dodd underscore draws. Uh, This guy is an artist after our own hearts. He does several drawings of Bigfoots and cryptids. And he's got a really badass series of these cryptid beer labels. And Preston, I don't think you've looked at this yet. But he's got things like the Van Meter Red Ale, which is, of course, basically after the Van Meter. Uh, you got Pale Crawler Ale. You've got the Snally Gaster Goza, and of course, Ooh. the one that I'm going to order a t-shirt of here pretty quick is going to be full-bodied and delicious, given the Wendigo Bourbon Barrel Stout, and it's got a Wendigo leaning over a barrel, and it looks just incredibly badass. So if you guys love art as much as we do, and especially art about cryptids, jump on and check out Jonathan Dodd underscore draws, because he has a lot of really badass artwork. Does he have now, any uh, metal metal signs? Does he does he do like uh, acrylic or enamel signs? Um, you know, I don't know, but that'd be worth shooting him a message to see if there's a way to get something printed. Perhaps uh, he and I just started following each other recently on the old um, Instagram after we started doing a lot of drawings and a lot of uh, stuff with Anasau, the people that make the epic Bigfoot and those really mm-hmm. badass gnomes. So um, I'll have to ask him if he does that or if there's a site uh, that could do that possibly. Is, uh, I'd order one from him because uh, I had this uh, out in the front yard, this hundred year old pole from a barn that dad mm-hmm. had stuck in the ground. And there was a really shitty bird house on top of it. So I took that down. I thought, man, you know, it would look really great on this fucking old gnarly wood pole, a fucking metal <laughs> sign of a cryptid. So, ooh, yeah, I'd be if, uh, if our main man's got one, I'd order one from him. Hell yeah. I'll hit him up tomorrow and ask him then. Hell yeah. Now, up next, we've got our friend Mindimalist, or our, you know, our good friend Mindy. And Mindy said Chessie, the sea monster of the Chesapeake Bay. And so in American folklore, Chessie is a sea monster said to have lived and continues to live amidst the Chesapeake Bay. Claims of seeing Chessie have filled local media and the region-themed books from 1936 on to today. And over time, what's interesting about this particular cryptid is it's actually fallen into the ecological health department of the Chesapeake Bay, and they use that to help promote, you know, more of a uh, healthy environment. And I'll get into that here in a second. 
Now, the earliest purported sightings of Chessie-like creatures have been from the military via helicopter sightings over the Bush River back in 1936, where pilots had reported seeing something reptilian and unknown swimming in the water. And then again in 1943, fishermen spotted something they said was about 75 yards away and at right angles from their boat. At first, it looked like something floating on the water. It was black, and part of it was out of the water, and it seemed to be about 12 feet long. This thing's head was as big as a football and shaped somewhat like a horse's head, and it could stick its head up out of the water and turn it around several times in each direction. So kind of like it was like an owl where it just can twist its head around. Later in 1976, witnesses claimed to have seen Chessie near southern Maryland's Calvert Cliff State Park and the Potomac River in Westmoreland County, Virginia. Now, a sketch of the unknown sea creature was drawn by a boater named Trudy Guthrie and was published in the Evening Sun back in September of 1980. But later, scientists identified the sketch as nothing more than a manatee because manatees are actually occasionally sighted in that area. But unlike the reports of serpentine creatures like Chessie, manatees are known to create a smooth footprint as they move, rather than undulating side to side like a sea creature. Now later in 1982, a guy and gal named Robert and Karen Frew supposedly videotaped Chessie near the Kent Island. Their video shows a brownish object swimming side to side like an aquatic snake. And then you've got more um, eyewitness accounts, I mean, even to this day. But what's really cool about Chessie is kind of similar to Washington State. They've actually, you know, Chesapeake Bay has used Chessie as an environmental icon. So there was a 1986 Chesapeake Bay story coloring book that focuses on Chesapeake Bay, where it has several renditions of Chessie within it and also a second coloring book from 1991 called Chessie Returns. And in the 1980s, Chessie became a symbol for environmental advocacy in Maryland, where illustrations of the monster were in newspapers and government publications and accompanying articles about environmental issues, giving the monster more of a friendly appearance to help promote cleaning and tidying up the environment in the area near the Chesapeake Bay, saying that Chessie too could actually be a harmless victim of pollution. So everybody all at once, aww. Now our last comment we're going to dive into here is from our old buddy Bob Drock, with a very peculiar set of creatures that I had never heard about. Preston, have you heard of the Silver Swimmers of Lake Baikal? Vaguely. Vaguely. Okay. I hadn't heard much of them also, so let's, uh, excuse the pun here, let's dive into the Silver Swimmers of Lake Bacall. So located in the southeastern area of Siberia near the border of Mongolia sits the planet's oldest and deepest lake. This is where you can find one quarter of the entire Earth's fresh water being contained. Now, the depths in this area can be 5,000 feet and deeper that have been actually measured, and it features a very, very, very bizarre 
and unique set of actual underwater creatures that you can't find anywhere else on Earth besides here in Lake Bacall. Scientists estimate that this is an actually a massive basin that was formed by an ancient rift valley that occurred more than 25 million years ago. And for centuries, in addition to the weird wildlife you can find in the water, Lake Baikal has actually been the home to a ton of unexplainable phenomenon, including countless local claims of UFO encounters frequently occurring within this area of Russia. And some people seem to theorize there might actually be an underwater base housing a whole race of underwater aliens. So throughout the eras, Baikal has been no stranger to mysterious UFO activities, including one specific event that happened in the 1950s. A TU-104J crashed into the lake after it was witnessed to be chased by an unknown metallic flying vehicle. The frantic pilot had radioed a distraught message to air traffic controllers, informing them of a bizarre craft chasing him using um, allegedly impossible air maneuvers. According to informants, all staff on duty at the time when these reports were made by the pilot were forced to sign non-disclosure agreements, as well as numerous community witnesses, including fishermen who said they witnessed a bizarre and frightening aerial chase occur from a plane being followed by an unidentified metallic object. The plane was then chased until it plummeted into the water, and so did the bizarre metallic craft, in which the craft never came out of the water. So one of the most bizarre reports that happened later after this was in 1982 during routine Soviet military dive training. While navigating the foreboding aquatic realm, Navy personnel noticed while they were underneath the water, probably about 100 plus feet down, that they weren't the only diving team in the area. Looking off in the near distance, they were very, very confused when they watched in bewilderment as several curious other humanoid creatures began to swim up close. Now, despite being stationed at a depth of over 164 feet underwater, the Soviet dive team said these humanoid creatures, they wore no modern swimming equipment, each donned only a tight-fitting metallic suit and a small helmet-like apparatus completely covering their heads. Now, as the creatures got closer, the Soviet dive team noticed that these humanoids were almost 10 feet tall. However, after the alien creatures got enough of what they wanted to from their observations of the Soviets, they took off diving deeper into much murkier water where they disappeared. Now, after this bizarre run-in, the commander ordered his recruits to capture one of these aquatic creatures. So they sent out a dive team of seven scuba divers that entered the glacial-like lake where they began descending farther and farther into the water in hopes of finding one of the creatures. Now once they got down there, they did notice one sole bizarre humanoid swimming by himself. So they pulled out a net and they attempted to ensnare one of these weird humanoids. Now as soon as they tossed out the net and it began to go around one of the humanoids, the shit really hit the fan. Suddenly, several other of these non-human creatures came flying up out of the depths of the water and began shooting what the Soviet dive team said was like strange sonic waves or sonar from strange metallic box-like devices. 
The powerful forces from the sonar weapons rendered every crew member in the seven-man dive team unconscious, which rapidly propelled them to the surface due to the oxygen in their dive tanks. Now, we do know that, you know, moving that quickly up from depths of, you know, 100 to 200 feet can cause a real nasty side effect called the bends. Three of the squadron were seriously injured, but didn't quite succumb to the affliction known as the bends. The remaining fellows needed some immediate transfer to a decompression chamber. Now, unfortunately, the only decompression chamber in the region was only big enough for up to two full-size men to get inside of. Now, because they knew that this was a dire, dire time, they decided, they decided to shove all four of the divers into the decompression chamber, where unfortunately, simultaneously putting that many people into the decompression chamber didn't work, and three of the four died from results of the, uh, the, de uh, the bins. The other four who survived the attack would go on to live with life-altering disabilities due to such a rapid, you know, decompression. Oh. And then after this event, the KGB stepped in, ceased any further attempts to, you know, research USOs, unidentified submerged objects, and for decades later, the horrifying events that happened that day in Lake Baikal were completely covered up by the Soviet government. Sneaky fucking Russians. <laughs> um, now, because we are living in a time of a very bizarre um, disclosure, more and more facts from this actual encounter may be coming out before too long. Because recently, Vladimir Azaha, a former Soviet naval officer and esteemed ufologist, declared that Russian government executives would have to release declassified files of the Lake Baikal encounter, among with other UFO encounters, kind of like we're having here in the States. Mm -hmm. There's and then um, recently... Good. There is... Uh, the So the Tunguska event, mm -hmm. there's an um, author that this year um, wrote a book that details, and I want to cover it on the show, but basically details that uh, there is uh, up in the Siberian tundra, like where the blast took place. There are yeah. these reports of these copper mushroom-like bell-shaped objects that rise out of the ground. And it's almost like a defense system, like a defense grid for the earth that protects the earth against asteroids. And that the Russian government um, sent in like expeditions throughout the years to study them. And like mm -hmm. some of these scientists were like sleeping inside these chambers of these machines, so to speak, and like suffer radiation poisoning. So mm -hmm. there's supposed to be a lot more information coming out about that. And that fucking just chubs me up right there to think about like ancient <laughs> alien technology that, uh, you know, basically protect like we don't have to worry about the dinosaur I just watched the movie Greenland with uh, Gerard Butler in it, and it's a pretty uh -huh. fucking depressing movie. Well, I'm here to tell you folks <laughs> that we don't have to worry about that because Russia, thank God, comrades, you got us covered with the, the ancient alien technology. And apparently, <laughs> the, you know, the giant half-naked, you know, Aquaman, you know, swimming in Lake Bacall. So eh, doesn't hurt anything. Doesn't hurt. Doesn't hurt anything. Well, and what's interesting here, too, is... We're living, like I said earlier, in a very bizarre time right now where we're actually witnessing disclosure like we've never had before 
but it also seems like no one really gives a shit, right? Like this is in the oh, headlines, yeah. CNN, Fox News. You're reading this on Twitter, on Facebook, and it's like nobody I know outside of the folks that really, you know, are into this kind of stuff seem to really give a shit. Like yeah. at most I'll hear, eh, it's not aliens, blah, 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 blah. And that's fine. If it's not aliens, that's that's one thing. But like we should still be concerned with what the heck it is. Right. Or like when the government does release these reports and then, mm-hmm. you know, they give you like all the, the breakdown and the math. And it's like, well, 5% of the crashes and the stuff that we recovered is not of this earth. So mm-hmm. then it's like people hear that and they're like, eh, I mean, 5% of it's aliens. Who gives a shit? Like, right. wait, hold on. They just said aliens. And they're like, man, it's only 5%. Yeah. Yeah, it's all in how you spin the facts, I guess. Yeah. Well, in addition to UFOs and UAPs, unidentified aerial phenomenon, something else that we're actually looking into that may be included in the supposed grand disclosure file that's going to be hitting, you know, the public interest in June <clears throat> in June is going to be that of the government's interest in USOs, unidentified submergible objects, which apparently are being tracked by Navy submarines. So who knows? We may get a lot more stuff going on in Lake Baikal and other, you know, areas of the world as well. We'll see. I don't know. Supposedly there's going to be another big wave of disclosure hitting uh, newsstands come June, so uh, only a few weeks away. Hell yeah. Yep. But, you know, with Earth being covered in, like, what, 70% of water still? I mean, yeah, that's something to look at. We're looking at the skies all the time, but what about looking just deep below us? What's going on there? Well, there's uh, right off the coast of uh, uh, where the Bermuda Triangle is, Mm -hmm. there's a part of the, the, the shelf that drops down, and it drops down, like, you know, several miles. And it's yeah. restricted ocean space. Like, you know how we have restricted airspace? So this part of the ocean, like, you're not allowed to dive in it. And, mm-hmm. you know, there's not, like, any submarine activity. And as you get close to it, there are photos of divers because, like, the the water is so clear. Like, the first 200 feet is so clear that you see these giant fiber optic cables that run along mm-hmm. the bottom of, of the reef. And then all of a sudden they just drop down into this abyss and the abyss mm-hmm. is the uh no swim zone and uh <laughs> so it's like well what the fuck are you hiding there governments what's well, going on not even that but there's a such thing as an underwater lake so imagine like you have the ocean and just any segment mm-hmm. of the ocean you dive in and as you go down to what you think is you know the ground so maybe 20 30 feet deep You'll find a ring of rocks or kind of like a trench, and you'll notice the water inside that little trench is darker than the water you're swimming in. And so you try to approach it, you try to dive into it, but you notice the water itself is actually more dense than the water you're swimming in. So something we're just now learning about in the last 10 or 15 years are these underground lakes with a higher density water inside than just the ocean. So, I mean, that just opens up more questions than answers, you know. Yeah, like, what the fuck is in the bottom of that thing? Aliens. Yeah. <laughs> sea monsters. Right. Chessie, Nessie, Silver Lake swimmers, you know, could be a yeah. lot of stuff. Well, everybody, thanks for writing in and giving us, uh, you know, your your suggestions and your favorites. We appreciate that. And, uh, yeah, never knew much about the old uh, Silver Swimmers of Lake by call, but now we do. 
Isaac, your Lake Placid counts, but not really. <laughs> yeah, Isaac had mentioned <laughs> Isaac had mentioned Oliver Platt from Lake Placid. <laughs> uh, well, let's plug some stuff and get out of here, shall we? Check us oh, out yeah. on the old Instagram, PXL Paranormal. We want to welcome all the new listeners, all the new followers. Uh, thanks again for everybody who stopped out to say hi at our table with uh, Big Dobbs out there at the uh, hot homemade open market. Please check out the Facebook page, The Pixelated Podcast. And then check out the rest of the shows on the Pixelated Sausage Network. You got Mark Solo Show, Pixelated Sausage, uh, Attack the Backlog, On Amazingly Baca, and 13 Nightmares. We should hopefully have our next installment of that due out in June. Presto, what do you got? Uh, we got to 95 subscribers. We're up to 95 subscribers on the YouTube channel. So, uh, you know what, listeners, do us a favor and pimp the shit out of that for us and tell mm-hmm. your friends, tell your family if. Uh, because my cousin, the weird bastard, he won't listen to a podcast on a podcast <laughs> app. He only like listens to it on YouTube. So there are those people out there that still use YouTube for podcasts. So let them know. Pixelated Paranormal is where it's at. And then, yeah. um, you know, I didn't want to have to go here, but I'm going to go ahead and go here. If you want to make a messy in your Nessie, you're going to need some sweet tobacco. And uh, what better way to get that than check out BigDobsBeardBomb.com and use promo code PXLPARA for 20% off your order. You're going to look good. You're going to smell good. Your beard is going to feel amazing. And then uh, sweet tobacco is not your thing, which it should be. Check out Bay Rum, Classic, Citrus, Mint, and uh, I Dundee you know, Cedar, Dundee Cedar, dude, get it all and get mm-hmm. it at Dobbs. And we do need to mention this that uh, Big Dobbs, <laughs> I can't even <laughs> say it without laughing. Big Dobbs beard balm and beard oil are meant for external use only. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, on behalf of Steve, until next time, folks, cheers to the weird shit in the world and to those of us that love to talk about it. And stay spooky and stay on the paranormal highway. The cast at Pixelated Paranormal would like to thank you for listening to this week's episode. Pixelated Paranormal is here to tell you tales of the fantastical, the strange, the unknown. Tales that will move you a little further down the paranormal highway. If you'd like to share your own listener story, we would love to hear it. Email us at pixelatedparanormal at gmail.com. Again, that's pixelatedparanormal at gmail.com. We'd really love to hear from you. Again, thanks for listening to this week's episode of Pixelated Paranormal, your guide to the unusual and the strange.